Well, we've put on the table an offer, not an ultimatum. I welcome Adam's confirmation this morning in his words that this is an offer, not an ultimatum. I think that's the spirit. Greens supporters in the community would be shocked to see the Greens walking over to sit next to Peter Dutton and Barnaby Joyce. I didn't attend the chamber for the apology 15 years ago. I've apologised for that in the past and I repeat that apology again today. Because it's the board, there are nine of us, including Michelle, who make these decisions. And we take them collectively. It's not just me making these decisions. So substantial infrastructure, in particular power, communications, roading and water are the main areas that's been damaged. There is now majority support for independence in Scotland. And my judgement now is that a new leader will be better able to do this. There is a distinction between provoking thought and facilitating the spreading of a message that simply doesn't accord with basic human values. If we only come together to agree with each other, we might as well forget having public conversations. The rap. Well, everything old is green again this week. We've taken a bit of a trip down memory lane, although they're not exactly fond memories for many in Canberra. The Greens are being warned not to repeat history by voting against the Albanese government's safeguard mechanism. Joining me now to wrap the week in news is freelance reporter and author of The Carbon Club, Marion Wilkinson, and political and international editor with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, also an author of many fine books, Peter Harcher. Welcome to you both. Great to have you both. Great to be here, Andy. Firstly, on the safeguard mechanism and the Greens, the history that we're talking about is their decision in 2009 to oppose Labor's emissions trading scheme. Certainly is used as a bit of a boogeyman, if you like, a bit of a a stick to to whack uh, the Greens with. Marion, this was a pretty decisive moment if we cast our minds back to 2009 and a decisive moment for the Australian climate wars. It must be weighing heavily on, on the mind of Adam Bant. I'm sure it is because uh, however you view what happened back then, the narrative has always been that the Greens killed Labor's climate policy. I think there's a few things, though, that we should remember is that later, after Kevin Rudd went and Julia Gillard came in, the Greens did negotiate a climate policy with Julia Gillard. And one of the key people in those negotiations was Anthony Albanese, who was leader of the House at the time. So I think the difference this side, um, this time around, even though people have staked out pretty strong positions, is that uh, Anthony Albanese has actually has a history here and his history is different to Kevin Rudd. His history is of someone who had to broker negotiations between the Greens and the Independents and the Gillard government. I guess the second thing I'd say uh, on this is where we are repeating history is once again the coalition has decided that it's opting out of difficult climate negotiations and are just going to take the position that they're going to try and sink the proposal. Uh, Peter, I read a very apt description of the argy-bargy between Labor and the Greens this week as, quote, performative displays of hostility. Sounds like Christmas lunch with my family. Uh, We we, we had a bit of uh, good cop, bad cop going on. Uh, That sort of role play had Chris Bowen and Tanya Plibersek, one going the good, one going the bad cop. Uh, Who do you think will blink first, Adam Band or Chris Bowen? I think they're both going to be... uh 
maybe winking, uh, each winking one eye <laughs> rather than blinking both. Very codified, uh, I think, yes. I, yeah, I think it's going to be a um, an accommodation by both, a compromise. And, you know, as you say, they each have to position for their constituencies before the negotiation. They each have to uh, sound their 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 message and look and look stern. But what the, the big difference between now and two thousand and nine uh, is that the Greens have learned from that experience. Under Adam Bandt, the Greens have become not a, a protest party, which is what the Greens often have been tempted to do, but it's become a problem-solving party. Um, Band has been prepared to negotiate um, compromise with Labor over, you know, quite a range of important legislation. Um, of course, Labor's 43% signature cut in emissions, the legislation for that, the Greens and Labor came to a compromise to get that through. Labor's industrial relations signature uh, legislation, the Greens helped Labor get that through with compromise with some compromises. Um, the Greens have decided to back the voice, uh, the Indigenous voice to Parliament, for example, um, and that will involve some compromises too. So it's it's really decided to become a party that helps solve problems, doesn't stand up the back with its arms folded, looking sulky. Um, and you know, of course, it's in Labor's interest to get this through too. So I think. Uh, and I, in fact, I was talking just today with one of the people involved in the negotiations. Uh, there's quite a lot of work going on, and there is scope for um, there is scope for compromise, and I think that's the likely outcome. Marion, what do you think uh, these potential compromises could be? I mean, Tanya Plibersek has pointed out that she knocked back the Clive Palmer coal mine in Queensland last week, but that's not at all the same as no new coal and gas. Is there a middle ground, some new coal and gas? I mean, apart from the other um, items of uh, negotiation on the table, there, there doesn't seem to be any room to wiggle when it comes to that sentence, no new coal and gas. Well, I think everyone will be looking for wiggle room here, as Peter said. And I think there have been some papers put out on this already, uh, certainly from the people who are talking to the Greens and and to Senator uh, David Pocock. And I think that where where they will be looking for compromise from the government is, first of all, tightening up the offsets uh, system. That's the system of buying carbon credits to offset emissions. I think they'll want a much tighter regime for particularly the fossil fuel companies. And I think while you're right about there's no way the uh, Labor government can go to this question of no new gas and coal um, developments because obviously they didn't take it to the election and also they would be held to pay, I think, with a lot of their union supporters. I think where um, where things get really interesting on this is whether new fossil fuel developments will have more constraints on them than the existing ones. In other words, uh, you know, will they be, for example, um, unable to use offsets, um, carbon Australian carbon credit unit, units, for example, uh, if they're starting a new project from scratch or will they have to be uh, carbon neutral from scratch? So I think there's room to move, there's room to talk and both sides will 
obviously be trying to find out how much they can give and how much they can afford to give in these negotiations. Let's move on. I do want to talk about these Chinese, well, the Chinese balloon with the other unidentified objects that were until recently flying over North America. Four of them shot down in the past fortnight. I mean, if they weren't Chinese, these gender reveal parties have certainly got out of hand. Uh, Peter, <laughs> you've, you've been writing about this this week, uh, pointing out that there's a long history of these sorts of devices, balloons that is, being used for surveillance, particularly by the United States. Yeah, and if you go back far enough, the first balloons used for any military purpose were in the third century uh, in the Han Dynasty by China. They used them as a signalling device uh, for battle. But yes, in the in more recent centuries, the the first big um, espionage and surveillance program in the Cold War was operated by the US against the Soviet Union and China. It was in 1956. Operation Genetrix, it was called, and uh, the, the Americans put some 5,000 balloons, um, floated them across Eastern Europe, uh, carried by prevailing winds across the Soviet Union and into China. They only recovered fewer than 10% of those balloons. Um, sorry, I said 5,500. They, they recovered fewer than 10%. It was only about 34, I think, were recovered. Uh, and yet there was enough recovered in those balloons to map in extremely intimate detail 8% of the landmass of the Soviet Union and China, and they detected, among other things, a large nuclear facility that the, the Soviets were building. Um, the, one of the differences here is that, well, first, obviously, the Americans pioneered this. The Chinese didn't come up with this idea. Second, uh, when the Soviets detected the, the, the American balloons, it only took them um, a week or two, and they detected them, and they demanded they stop. And the Americans did within two days. President President Eisenhower stopped the balloons. Yeah, well, it. Um, I was reading the New York Times this week that apparently these latest balloons are navigable. I mean, they are remotely navigable. You can just rise and fall in altitude to catch different winds. So the idea that this is out of control is certainly to be questioned. Is, is now. It is now suspected that only one of these four identified aerial objects originated in China. So the question has to be, has the US overreacted or or underreacted? (laughs) I think they went from a state of blissful ignorance. Uh, The Chinese, according to what the Americans now tell us, had apparently been operating these surveillance balloons across the continental US for some years, uh, but the Americans only ever detected them after they'd left their territory by studying imagery, which they found long after the balloons had gone. So the Chinese were continuing to do it undetected, essentially. And they've gone from that state to having, you know, this thing pointed out to them and having blown it up. They then entered a state of extreme skittishness and started shooting down what appeared now to have been weather balloons, completely harmless. Um, and they're going to have to, I think they're now in the process of trying to find a, a, a more workable uh, modus operandi, uh, only shoot down the <laughs> only shoot down the Chinese balloons. Not everyone, as you say, not every party balloon or <laughs> or, or weather balloon, uh, they, they have to calm down. But look, just if I may briefly say, um, this is all kind of, uh, it's had a, a really outsized impression on US public opinion and has alarmed and activated a lot of American uh, fear and concern and well, alarm. Exactly. But, Having a reminder yeah. of foreign incursion flying across the flyover state, so to speak, is quite a powerful thing. Certainly, uh, it seems to have had an effect in, in, in their opinion polls. 
Yeah, it's galvanised the public and it's galvanised politics and it's really up the stakes on Biden to, to show a tougher stance. But the, the, the real cutting edge uh, here and what could bestow a killer advantage on one side over the other, the US or China, is actually at the complete opposite end of the technological spectrum. It's quantum computing and quantum uh, communication. The first country, and they're both going hell for leather, investing many billions into this effort, the first country to master those technologies uh, will have, A, the ability to read everything that the enemy is doing. No encryption will stand against effective quantum computing. And B, the country with quantum communication will have an unhackable communication system because there is no signal to intercept in quantum communication. And this will bestow an advantage so enormous that I don't think we've even really begun to understand the consequences of this imminent breakthrough. Yeah, wow, it's scary. Uh, if you just tuned in on RN Drive, I'm wrapping up the week's news uh, with freelance reporter and author Marion Wilkinson and political and international editor with the Sydney Morning Herald, Peter Harcher. Marion, uh, speaking of uh, potentially antagonising China, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison continues to trek the speaker's circuit. Today he's in Tokyo uh, representing the good people of Cook, uh, accusing the West of appeasing China and urging his successor to slap Chinese officials with Magnitsky-style sanctions over human rights abuses. What is this about and exactly which um, businessman, Chinese businessman, would he be referring to here? Uh, well, I think that uh, he has several in his sights, um, particularly as ones that are tied up in um, in the uh, whole issue of the oppression of the Uyghurs in China. But I think that we need to step back here a bit. I think this is much more about Scott Morrison than it is necessarily about the Uyghurs because, of course, um, it was Scott Morrison that... Um, led to the blow up in Chinese relations with China that we had at the time of the uh, COVID crisis and particularly as um, Australia's actions during that time, the pressing of the issue on uh, about the investigation of the origins of the virus. And I think clearly one of the things that's been happening since Anthony Albanese was uh, uh, elected is the the attempts to now stabilise the relationship with China. And of course, um, so far we are seeing some success with that. And uh, just last week, um, there were some movement on the issue of coal imports into China and other products going back into China. And I think um, there is an issue here where Scott Morrison is trying to um, reinforce with people that his legacy on China will be the one that will be remembered and that he should be remembered for. I think there's also, given the history of Scott Morrison, a fairly obvious thing that he, whatever issue he um, deals with from a, on a policy level, he also politicises and I think there's no doubt there's some attempt here for him to leverage um, the politics of this issue uh, at, this, at this point in time. But I think that uh, realistically the... Uh, Australian government is going to be very cautious in how they um, uh, in how they approach this issue. Senator Wong, our foreign affairs minister, she has been uh, 
obviously trying to walk a very delicate path here. She has been constantly raising human rights issues with the Chinese, but equally trying to get the relationship back on a slightly more even keel. I don't know how much um, effect Scott Morrison will actually have with his speech. What do you think, Peter? Is this, um, you know, reputation renovation uh, for Scott Morrison uh, speaking on the international stage and directing people's attention towards um, his record in government uh, when it comes to China? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think Marion's right tells us more about Scott than about China. In fact, uh, it doesn't have much credibility because uh, he was the Prime Minister. He had the Magnitsky Act at his disposal and he didn't act on it. He didn't use it against the perpetrators of the suspected genocide going on against the Uyghur people. Um, yet now he's urging the next government to do it, to do what he, he didn't and, and, and wouldn't. So I don't think he has a lot of cred on this, even though... Uh, I think this is exactly the reason, the sort of reason that Magnitsky powers exist in the first place. I do want to move on to the Aston by-election. Obviously, Labor has announced today that Mary Doyle will be their candidate for this by-election, the seat vacated by former Liberal Cabinet Minister Alan Tudge. The Liberals are going to want to settle on their pick pretty quickly, Uh, aren't they, Marion? I mean, this is the first test, the first... Uh, by-election in this term of government? Uh, It is. And (laughs) I think it might be a more interesting test of the Victorian Liberal Party than it (laughs) may be of the Albanese government. Look, it's as we all know, it's terribly, terribly hard to win a by-election if you're in government. Uh, And it was clever of Labor, I think, to re-endorse Mary Doyle. And she's got a good narrative But I think what I'm rather more fascinated uh, to look at is the array already we have of potential Liberal candidates, including some pretty high-profile women, and whether the Victorian Liberal Party can settle on a candidate without having a bun fight about it at the same time. That's, I think, the first question. The other question which I think will be really interesting is whether that candidate will be pinned down on issues that are difficult for uh, the leader, specifically the voice. Uh, Will there be questions about how that uh, candidate will handle the issue of the voice? I think the other really tricky question in that electorate too, which has become increasingly multicultural, is what will happen with the um, Chinese vote there because we do know that the Teals were, for example, quite fortunate in places like Kuyong where uh, the the Chinese vote um, did play a bit of a factor and Labor equally in their seat of Bennelong in New South Wales. So there's a lot going on, uh, not to mention the the, uh, run-up to this, which was the resignation of um, Mr Tudge, who'd had a rather difficult time at the Robo Debt Royal Commission. Yeah, that suddenly goes away on his departure. Peter, um, uh, let's just talk about The Voice. Peter Dutton stood up in Parliament this week and apologised for walking out on Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generation in 2008. What do you think this means as we wait and learn of his official position on The Voice to Parliament? Has Julian Lesser got into his ear here? Well, I think uh, his regret is genuine. Uh, he does, on a personal level, uh, feel sheepish about it. 
uh, he does on a personal level, I think, uh, feel, you know, quite some deep uh, identification with the the plight of Indigenous Australians. Uh, and it's my observation that over many over many years, many leaders in different parties, when they take those jobs, they, they seem to uh, shoulder uh, and accept in a way they hadn't before uh, some share of responsibility. But that will not affect his approach to the voice, <laughs> having said all that, because when it comes to the voice and current decisions, uh, Peter Dutton's... Uh, main priority is to keep his job. No opposition leader being the first one, you know, to take the job after losing an election has survived long enough in that job to go to the next election, to lead his party to the next election. So that's his primary um, goal here is to keep his job. And the best way to keep his job is uh, not to say yes or no to the voice, but to give his people to take a uh, uh, maybe an agnostic position um, to keep expressing doubts, to keep his position open and then give his party a free vote or a conscience vote uh, because that, by refusing to take a rigid position, won't provoke a blow-up or a, a revolution, a revolt in his own party room and that's what he's most desperate to avoid. Let's just stay on the voice for one second, Marion. I mean, the campaigns are about to be launched. The substance of the arguments are uh, about to be forthcoming. We've had some interesting revelations when it came to the, the funding of the No campaign in Crikey this week. What do you think, what's the next step here? What's the next line? Because the Peter Dutton's line about let's see some more detail is frankly getting a bit long in the tooth. We heard that all summer. So what do you think the next tactic will be here? Um, that'll be very interesting to watch. I think Peter is absolutely right. Um, Dutton's principal um, priority, I think, here at the moment is keeping his job and it is terribly difficult for him. And what I find very interesting is looking at a combination of how um, Peter Dutton as opposition leader is hemmed in really by the Queensland LNP here. Uh, the Queensland LNP, it's in their DNA to oppose this. Uh, they've opposed um, all these key reforms, including, um, of course, they were the ones who were fighting years ago the Mabo decision. Marion, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. PM is upon us. It's been great to have both of your analysis of the week. Marion Wilkinson is a freelance reporter and author of The Carbon Club. Peter Harcher is a political and international editor with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Have a nice weekend to you both. Pleasure, Andy. Thanks, Andy. It's time for PM Now with Rachel Mealy. I'll see you again on Monday for RN Drive. Hope you have a great weekend. I'll see you then.